Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to another episode of Clean Tech Talk. My name is Scott Cooney. Today, I'm here with a very special guest, Amy Christensen, founder and CEO of Christensen Global, a sustainability consulting firm. Amy's got an incredible resume, and I'm super excited to have you on the show today. You've done sustainability initiatives in a leadership position for Virgin, the United Nations, Microsoft, Google. You helped broker the first bilateral agreement on climate change between the United States and another sovereign nation. I think that was back all the way back to like 1994, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, impressive. You're you're a lawyer and a policymaker. Basically, as I was uh, researching your resume, I just see that you've spent an entire career in helping climate-friendly initiatives and companies scale and grow. So first off, thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm really happy to be here. And it's always fun to talk about the journey and where we are now and how we can all do more better. So looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. So yeah, so it, it, what I what I love about your journey in particular is that you have this incredibly expansive career and then you saw some local need and you settled back into uh, Idaho and started building, you know, resilience and taking local action there. In one of your bios I read that you you cited the there was a big fire in 2013, the Beaver Creek fire as a moment that kind of shook your community awake. And from that, there was interest and resilience and, you know, what, what can we do on a local scale to help the global picture? And so you led solar initiatives and you helped farmers and the farmer's market. And I, I just think that this is basically the rubber hitting the road. And it's a bit of a blueprint of taking these big ideas and boiling them down to local action, theory becoming practice and science becoming action. So I love that approach. If, if there's anything you want to talk about with regard to that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your insights on that. And then we're going to jump into COP28 after that. Awesome. Well, yes. I mean, I moved home right after the Copenhagen climate talks for family reasons, moved home to central Idaho after living in San Francisco, spending a lot of time in New York, lived in DC for about 15 years. And so moved home to Idaho and within a very short amount of time, realized that my community was facing some really significant climate impacts. We were definitely seeing mega fires in 2007. And then again, in 2013, the Beaver Creek fire hit and burned 100,000 acres across the west side of our of our valley. I live in the Sun Valley, Woodward Valley region. And, and we also were having conflicts between or challenges among farmers and municipalities over water rights. What is our value of water? What, what should we be using water for? Agriculture, recreation. And so our community was increasingly having conversations about the future of our thriving economy, an economy dependent upon recreation and tourism. About two-thirds of our economy is dependent upon recreation and tourism, the Sun Valley Ski Resort. Um, We're an Olympic training site for snow sports. And of course, the summers are incredible for just outstanding mountain biking trails, hiking trails, river rafting, the whole thing. So when you have fires in the summer, you can't recreate because of air quality and no one wants to be in a place with a lot of smoke. And in the winter, if you don't have snow and predictable snowfall, 
and availability, it makes it really hard to be a snow-based resort community. And so our the conversation started around what do we value? Uh, we hosted the, I think it was the 2013 Sun Valley Economic Development Conference. And we started to talk about investing for quality of place, moving beyond GDP. And what does our quality of place mean? And what does that look like? Um, and Beaver Creek Fire really brought this resilience lens on top of that, recognizing the climate risks that we are facing. We also are on the edge of the grid and we had a power outage in 2009 that took two transmission lines out to our south. And so our whole community was shut down for two days, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. And for a ski resort, that was also another wake up call. So the combination of the risks becoming increasingly clear, our community having these conversations, we decided in early 2015, we should found an institute for resilience and and gather our, our efforts to think strategically about what we should be investing in for a more resilient future. And as you said, one of the first things we thought of was let's localize our energy system with a solar adoption campaign. Let's invest in helping our farmers transition from exporting 98% of the food we grow to doing more local food growing to reduce our food costs, the 10th most expensive county in the nation for food, and, and to uh, have more food security for our community, which then was hit hard in 2020. We organized ourselves to have a recovery committee to work on that. So we just keep facing these, these risks that our community realizes, wow, we need to be more locally resilient um, with climate change as driver, but of course, a number of different risks facing a community like ours. So yes, a lot to do there. And it made me better at the global work that I do. I learned so much from that work of how do you make things happen, working with cities, working with the county, working at the state level, the regulatory environment, of course, for energy is at the state level. You know, how do we work to improve our regulatory environments? So yeah, I think it's really made the work that I do at the global level level even more well-informed, taking five years to work at that at the local level. So it was incredibly rewarding and love working with the team at the Sun Valley Institute for Resilience who continue to lead it. Now that I've I've stepped back to relaunch my advisory board, my um, advisory firm back in 2020. Brilliant. I love it. It's sort of top down and then bottom up. And when mm -hmm. it comes, you know, it's like you, you've, you've, gone into the into the trenches, done some work there and been able to bring that information back to a to a higher lens, which is really cool. And one of the things that I always I always find super fascinating is language. And over the years, the idea of what do we call this whole thing? You know, is it global warming? Is it climate change? All this kind of stuff. And, you know, even the words green and and so so many things in in my you know 30 years of watching and being in this space i've seen words become sort of dirty words you know and it's it's fascinating how the language gets so co-opted but now settling on this word resilience is so inarguable it's a it's a local you know initiative it helps the local people who can argue with resilience you know it it's you know this thing. i think it puts aside all the all the you know the, the possible naysayers who come in and always want to try and ruin everything good that we're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Resilience is, 
It's about, it brings a risk lens to everything and no one, you know, with risk, it automatically, I think, wakes you up to think about, wow, I'm facing these risks. I need to act. And so it's proactively getting ahead of those risks. It's strategy. It's, it's prioritization. And also it allows for a broader conversation in the community about what do we value? What do we care about? What do we want to be investing in? What kind of businesses and industries and what kind of livelihoods do we want to be supporting more of in our community that pay well and that and to help diversify the community and bring more vibrancy to the community. And I think resilience is this, I mean, it's a little bit, it can be all things to all people, but I think place-based resilience strategy makes, makes a lot of sense. And then, and then there are tools that we build on a place basis that can actually be replicable and learning opportunities. Like you said in the beginning, we sought to, we said, of said, if we can do it in Idaho, we can do it anywhere. Because unlike a lot of states, we didn't have a, a particularly friendly uh, regulatory environment for scaled up renewable energy. And we have use it or lose it water rights, which can make it harder to transition crops away from a lot of water use to less water use. And the value of land goes with the value of water. And so there, there are a number of different things that made it a good place to pioneer strategies that work. And one of them I'm most proud of is the Impact Idaho Fund, which uh, the Sun Valley Institute for Resilience launched in the last couple of years and has put out close to half a million dollars into local food and farm entrepreneurs, into projects for food processing, for food growing, hoop houses and greenhouses to extend our relatively short growing cycle to um, helping a micro dairy get started for raw organic milk um, that's compassionately treating the mothers and the babies, you know, to the, we have itty bitty farms growing microgreens in a food desert, which then led to grocery storefront being open in a place that didn't have a grocery store in the region. And so selling more local products beyond just the microgreens they were growing. So these follow-on effects of this relatively small amount of capital into our economy, it's just, it just can be really powerful. And I'm excited for the Impact Idaho Fund to continue to grow and for other communities to maybe consider how that approach might be, uh, which is really a revolving loan fund, might be useful in their communities as they work to drive more local investment. Brilliant. I love it. And like I said before, this is like the rubber hitting the road. And that's why I love that this provides somewhat of a blueprint. It's not a one size fits all cookie cutter sort of thing. It's a here's a toolkit. There's all sorts of local things you can do to do economic recovery locally that oh, also happen to help the global situation. And yeah. I love that. Me too. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. If you enjoy clean tech talk and clean technica, please consider pitching in a few dollars a month at cleantechnica.com slash support. That's cleantechnica.com slash support, where you can sign up in seconds with a credit card pitch in a few dollars a month or whatever you like. Some people actually contribute $100 a month to help us cover climate change and clean tech and try to help the world one word at a time. Thank you. Yeah. So I will put links to all of all of your initiatives which are there's too many to list into the show notes so take a look at those if you're if you're interested. But for now I want to move on to COP28. So you just came back from there and you know I've read a lot of, of stories about it, heard a lot of podcasts about it. There were tons of challenges and lots of criticism over the influence of the big fossil players there. 
I mean, this is the first time ever that Exxon CEO is there. And I just want to take a moment and say, really? Like, they, it's like the, the Exxon's CEO is for the very first time went to COP. That's, that's so mind blowing. And then the UAE, of course, the host nation, a major oil producer and, you know, some, some shenanigans, of course, in, involved in that. And I, I, you know, it's one of these things that we can make some incremental progress. We have to bring these folks on board and have these conversations. It is what it is. And, and one, I, I want to play a real quick clip from John Kerry here that I think kind of encapsulates it on, on some level. So let's hear from, from former, former presidential candidate and current climate envoy, John Kerry. This is a big ship you have to turn. You all know from the Titanic and other things, you can turn that wheel hard over and it'll take a mile or two. It takes a long time before the ship turns. And and that's where we are. But I think it's speeding up by the day. So that, that's that's Climate Envoy John Kerry also just re, re, coming back from COP28. And I and I think it's 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 cool. It's 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 a good way to frame it. I heard I heard uh, or read one comment about that saying, maybe choose a different analogy than the Titanic for this <laughs> for this whole thing. But long story short, yes, I mean it's it's incremental changes. It is what it is. Among the achievements that we got at COP this time, we have a first ever loss and damage fund, seven hundred million dollars allocated from richer nations to cover the costs, the economic losses being occurred by developing nations. The Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed by a major fossil producer during the conference, which was really cool. And I know you talked with those folks and that sort of thing, so maybe you can come back to that if you'd like to. 50 oil and gas companies signed on to a methane agreement to go to what they call near zero by 2030. I, I can kind of understand that zero is kind of impossible, but that's a major achievement. This is the first time ever that you know, obviously the big news was that fossil fuels were included in the final language and they were acknowledged as a necessary step to transition away from. The European Union announced $20 billion in green energy projects for Africa. There's a whole deforestation free value chain that was in, that was announced. So lots and lots and lots of good things. Oh, and also the, the announcement of uh, commitment to tripling of renewables, doubling down of energy efficiency was included, and that is great. And I actually did three recent Clean Tech Talk podcasts. So if you want to scroll back for listeners, if you want to scroll back about two months, I uh, interviewed Julia Souter, who is the head of the Long Duration Energy Storage Council, Bruce Douglas, head of Global Renewables Alliance, and Francisco Lacamara, who is the head of the International Renewable Energy Agency, about this tripling up and doubling down initiative. Super cool stuff. So lots of good things did happen at COP. It, tell us about your experience there. Set the stage for us. You know, innovation and opportunity, I feel like has always been a big part of your message. Through that mm -hmm. lens, you, what, do you, what do you see coming out of COP28? Mm. Wow, it's such a great question. And it was a really complex COP because, you know, it felt like it was the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that some people might say, well, the fact that we had the COP president who was in the fossil fuel industry, they were able to play a role in ensuring that we got that language and they're about phasing away from fossil, moving away from fossil fuels. And others would say it was in spite of that and that it was the outside pressure that really got that done. So, you know, I think the history books will write it better than the immediate takeaways. What I would say is that you had an unprecedented outside coalition of courageous leaders, especially young people, indigenous leaders, 
Pacific small island developing states, the most threatened by climate change, who were, by the way, the first signatories of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. You, the Pope and his uh, colleagues who were there, faith, other faith leaders, this it felt like a supportive global community seeking to go so much faster than what the negotiations are able to do because of the framework of a governmental negotiation that can be vetoed by one party. And so it was the inside world and then the outside world. And the inside world of the negotiations, yes, absolutely, having the first $700 million allocated, hopefully to be followed by a great deal more, as it must be for the loss and damage fund. And then the language about transitioning away from fossil fuels. I mean, you'd think at this point we would have already had that in there much more strongly, but at you least- You would hope so. <laughs> yeah. And all- credit to um, the organizers and the courageous voices who were insisting that in spite of what may have been said in the past, <laughs> um, including by the COP president, that the science did not require phasing away from fossil fuels. There was such clarity among leaders across the sectors I mentioned, plus other business and finance leaders saying that we have to stick to 1.5 degrees C and continue to aim as quickly as we can as strongly towards that goal still. And that requires phasing out fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty being kind of a parallel effort to say, let's create a global governmental framework to phase out fossil fuels in an equitable, relatively non-disruptive way, recognizing the central role that fossil fuels still play and that we quickly need to phase them out. And let's make sure we do that in a way that doesn't harm the most vulnerable who either rely on them uh, for their own energy needs and or produce and export them for critical capital needs. So the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty led by Zipporah Berman, who chairs it, longtime, incredibly effective and courageous activist around uh, issues for nature, starting her career in the forest sector. You know, she has built the t uh, with her collaborators across governments and other constituencies such support for this very clear call to get beyond fossil fuels. So I give her a lot of and the organization she's working with around the world, her partners, who, again, courageous, raising their voices in in ways in which they're putting themselves at risk and and just very clearly saying, no, we must move away from fossil fuels. And like you said, Colombia signing on to the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty was a huge step forward as a fossil fuel producer, stepping on to say, yep, we must phase down fossil fuels and um, they want to lead to do so. It was, it was incredibly heartening. And the pushback by all the leaders to say, we must stick with 1.5, we must get off of fossil fuels, and the final agreement must have that in it. There was a, a group of organizers, the Global Optimism and the B team and others got together and did a letter uh, reinforcing the need to ensure that we continue towards the science, what the science requires to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change and phase out fossil fuels. And there were something like 1,700 leaders from around the world who'd sign on the last time I checked. It's on the B-Team website, and it includes a wide array of leaders across these sectors who are just very clearly saying, you know, we're not giving up this, we're not turning away from 1.5, we're not turning away from phasing out fossil fuels. And 
there were youth activists who raised their voices and stood their ground physically in a place where, you know, protest can be not not welcome. And I just was so grateful and wanting to be there as a community supporter by getting other voices to sign on to that letter, creating that coalition of support around the courageous voices who were standing firm to say that there is a very powerful group of people who are supporting, ensuring that we at least have this language in the agreement and that we stick with what the science clearly says. So I am um, so the there was the insight negotiations there was this group of activists raising their voices in writing and in person and then outside of kind of the formal negotiating process and influencing it were all of the sessions around what are we doing about it right how are we actually implementing solutions for climate change and that where there were 90 something around close to 100,000 delegates at at the talks, and the vast majority of those were at these side sessions, whether they were working sessions, collaboration sessions, panel discussions, showcasing the strategies, uh, the financing, how do we engage consumers? How do we mobile accelerate the deployment of clean energy technologies? How do we transform food systems? I would say I'd focus on food systems as one of the most exciting developments during this COP because the last COP was the first time there was a food-related pavilion, and this time there were four or five of them, and the food day was just packed with substance. And I think it was about 150 countries signed um, on to including food systems in their nationally determined contributions to climate change, in their NDC reporting, as we continue to see, are we on track, taking action on climate change, integrating food and agriculture into that formally in the reporting by governments is critical. I mean, the food system is over 50% of anthropogenic methane emissions. It is the number one driver of breaking the planetary boundaries, which of course were created by Dr. Yellen Rockstrom and others, and really assess humans' impact on our ability to continue to have sustained life on earth and for ourselves and for all species. And so the food system is so critical that was heartening and that people realized that could be a an effective and relatively fast climate solution. And we need to figure out how to scale it, whether it's engaging people and mobilizing capital, both learning, education. Um, there was a lot of focus on transforming food systems, which gave me a lot of hope too. So that was a lot. <laughs> there was a wow. lot going on. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it it's the global economy, it's sustainability, it's climate change. It it, it literally touches everything. So it's it's one of those things that, yeah, I'm glad to see that there's there's not just a focus on fossil fuels and energy production and that sort of thing. There's there's everything. There was even I was reading something about a, a specific accelerator that was launched, Bloomberg and a and a group of others. Forty percent of global emissions coming from these hard to green industries like cement and steel and aviation. And it you know it's it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. The energy density is just so much that, you know, solar and wind, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to electrify those things. And so there's a whole specific accelerator that was launched at this. Now that this is a problem that most of us would never even know existed. Right. But there's an accelerator and there's smart people working on it and that's cool. <laughs> yes. And yeah. 
There are a number, yeah, these, they call them the hard to abate sectors <laughs> since sometimes, um, yeah, like you said, cement and others, and it, it takes that focus. I'm actually working on a related sector on the fashion industry to decarbonize the fashion supply chain. And for them, there's a lot of use of coal boilers for the high heat needs for dyeing processes. And so that there's a whole process to identify what are the technologies that can come in and replace the high heat process for dyeing of fabrics and then how can you electrify the coal boilers and use renewable energy for the electrification? And so there's, yes, there are multiple sectors who are working on these kind of collaborative among the companies and finance, their suppliers, how do they accelerate that decarbonization? And so that collaborative work like the Bloomberg um, hard to beat sectors, that, that new accelerator and the fashion industry and others, where it's this it's this collaboration between among the all the key players in that supply chain to figure out, all right, how do we actually get this done? How do we de-risk these new technologies? What kind of capital do we need? And another sector I'm working with, the philanthropic sector, they're stepping up to say, all right, how do we leverage our grant making and align our endowments, which are invested in creating the money that we get to grant make every year? How do we use all of it to accelerate the solutions to climate change? I mean, really, there's no excuse for two things. One, there's no excuse for money sitting on the sidelines. We need to reallocate resources towards climate aligned investments, towards solutions that get us toward that 1.5 or better. Right now, the U.S. stock market, I learned this from Elizabeth Alfano, who was one on a panel on transforming food systems I was on. The current stock market is uh, aimed towards 2.9 degrees C, and there's an ETF that's been set up with multiple uh, public equities in it that's around plant-based foods, and that's aimed at 1.1 degrees C. And so we, we have to reallocate our dollars, get it off the sidelines, get it out of things that are undermining our climate and into things that are solving for climate. And fortunately, we have a number of philanthropies, family offices who are working towards that and sharing those strategies with each other and how we get that that done. I'm working with the Russell Family Foundation from Russell Investments Family. They're already 95% aligned towards their goal for net zero and by 2030. And of course, Rockefeller Foundation announced they're moving uh, towards that as well with a huge endowment that they have, which is really exciting. The other thing we have to stop doing is we have to have, stop having unabated emissions. We just can't afford to keep putting it all up in the atmosphere. And so we had Aaron Bloomgarden from Emergent and the Leaf Coalition that's working to protect forests that are facing rapid deforestation from various pressures, a lot of which is agriculture related. And that saying, look, you know, if you're emitting, you have to abate it in some way. Obviously, the first thing you want to do is stop the emissions and the extent to which that is not yet feasible, such as in a hard to abate sector okay, what are you doing to invest in making up for that in another place? Um, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. But I think we just have to rethink all of, we just don't have time to continue to be incremental. Yeah, later is too late as they, as I heard was one of the um, chants yes. at COP. Yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> totally. Yes. And and again, you know, your your resume is incredible and your wealth of knowledge on the subject is 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 mind boggling. And I, but the, to go into like, one of the things that makes me feel some hope from time to time is seeing that there's, there's problems that I didn't know exist and really smart people already working on them way ahead of me being like, oh crap, there's a problem over there. I should probably figure out some way to help with that. No, there's, there's people who are like 
really dove into this stuff and are and are moving capital and are you know creating accelerators and and are you know starting businesses and this that and the other it's 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 cool to see that as a as a global perspective you're you're um you you do some work with the fashion industry was the fashion industry there at cop and if so yeah. in, in what in what space so they were there in a few different spaces. There was um, at the Action Hub, which is one of the spaces in the official Blue Zone. At the Action Hub, the fashion industry was there representing their different strategies that they're pursuing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the fashion industry. And so, for instance, the Global Fashion Agenda was talking about a new partnership that they've made to um, develop a large-scale offshore wind project in Bangladesh to help to green the grid of Bangladesh, where a lot of uh, clothing is made, of course, in that grid. The Apparel Impact Institute, with whom I've been working for the past year or so, is a, a nonprofit that's working with its, they have a, a global fashion and climate fund, and they've been raising funds from the industry, as well as some finance and philanthropy players from HSBC to Target and, and H&M and PVH and these, these fashion houses to collaboratively work on deploying decarbonization technologies down their supply chains. And so we had a working session between some of the brands, major supplier uh, who works in Sri Lanka, India, and Bangladesh, as well as HSBC, among others, who are to strategize. There's this ongoing strategic work and they leverage the fact that COP was happening to get back together and continue to progress their work they're doing on their strategies to basically build a, a $50 million uh, de-risking facility that can be there to then get the investment dollars to come in and finance the deployment of these newer technologies into markets where there might be risk or perceived risk because of newer technologies or markets where there may be concerns. And so about the um, stability of the investment. And so you have philanthropies and the brands uh, coming forward with the capital to, in grant form to say, all right, we'll provide that first loss or, or otherwise de-risking capital to unlock the resources to come in and finance the deployment of these technologies. So it gets into the weeds really quickly, but it's really that rolling up the sleeves and figuring out, all right, if we have these policy guidance and we have this investment framework and we have these projects, how are we getting it done and who's playing what role in order to get that money really moving at scale? So the, they were there in, an, in a number of kind of from panel discussions to working sessions inside and outside the formal uh, talk space, the Blue Zone. This, you know, as we're talking, kind of reminds me as many things do these days, since I, I work in the climate space and I think about this stuff a lot, it reminds me of the book Ministry for the Future which I still think my favorite book of all time, the the idea of how this might play out over the next 30 years is, is that's what the book is about. And there's just such a complex diversity of solutions and people and organizations working on this problem. It, it kind of, COP seems like a, a little microcosm of that book on some level. You just get to see it for a week and then you're like, holy crap, that was a lot. And you got to peace out for a bit. Yes, definitely. It it does feel that way. I loved ministry for the future. And I remember the part that got me the most excited when 
different regions were coming forward and sharing their region-specific place-based solutions that were working to deploy climate solutions, both mitigation and adaptation, a lot around rewilding, because as we know, nature is absolutely our best investment. And we must invest in nature because of all the benefits it brings from absorbing carbon to mitigating storm risks to providing food security. Um, I mean, just nature is amazing. And so- And, with and mental health benefits for everybody. Mental health, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> yes. Nature is definitely my go-to when the I'm- Healer, the ultimate healer, Gaia. Yes. And celebrating the nature. I think it's so important for all of us to just- uh, for me, I was definitely getting pretty sad having been in this for three decades and it can be hard. And and then I just kind of had a mind shift of celebrating the nature I get to experience that's still here and how amazing it still is. And there still is this incredible nature worth working for and working to protect. So I digress, but that was my favorite part of Ministry for the Future was sharing those practical solutions like the ones that the Sun Valley Institute for Resilience is working on here in our place and just sharing this is what we're doing and this is what we're doing and just creating that co-learning and that atmosphere of spiraling upward more and more and more momentum of action. And that is in a lot of ways how the outside of COP, the kind of the informal spaces of where people are getting together, collaborate and move, move their agenda forward. I actually met Dr. Delton Chen, who is the person who my understanding inspired the idea for the carbon coin in Ministry for the Future. And he was there at the Bhutan Pavilion where I attended their opening because of course Bhutan has figured out a lot around the need to protect nature as an incredible asset. And so that was really neat to meet the guy behind one of the key core ideas within the Ministry for the Future and the need to value carbon value nature. So um, that was one of my highlights of COP. Not not going to lie, I would have a little hero worship. I mean, I, I think <laughs> the, the carbon coin was one of the cool in, in the book. It's uh, I, I cannot, you know, I don't know why it's not here yet. I want it to be here. Like right now, I would invest in carbon coin 100%. And mm -hmm. I, it's such a cool concept to make this sort of digital currency that can help fund everything we need to do. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And so, yeah, I would, I would, I would sit there and I would just be in shock and awe. I would just, I would <laughs> just look at the guy and be like, "Ah, oh, you're cool. You're cool. I you're was really really cool. excited. I was. You're, yes, we took a photo. Awesome. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think that's that's. I think that just gets to the heart of it, which is we're we're working on solving to to restore our climate from the damage we've already made and to mitigate the worst of the future in a capitalist system that doesn't value nature sufficiently. It might value it here and there a little bit. Yeah. We might have regulatory limitations that put a cost on damaging nature where we can enforce laws and put penalties on people for destroying nature in certain regulatory environments. But overall, we know our capitalist, Western capitalist system doesn't value nature. And it's and so that that global carbon coin concept and other concepts to to just shift entirely what we value and recognize we're not here for short-term financial returns. We're here for so much more. And nature is so critical to what makes this incredible planet and being here and being alive 
everything. And so I, I just, one of my, what inspired my career was really getting my mom as a nature educator. So made me fall in love with nature when I was little. And my dad was all about justice. And I started spending time with the Mayan, the Mayan communities in Mexico. We started going there when I was nine and just uh, kind of from a very, not to be too superficial about it, but recognize their different engagement with nature and with each other and the miracles that they brought from nature, from eating to medicine. And I've just been hearing lately from indigenous communities, of course, that we are increasingly making their ability to live with and from nature only impossible from the droughts that are being caused from climate change. And therefore they're facing those droughts and food food insecurity they've never faced in millennia to that lack of a predictable food growing cycle. And so I just... Nature has provided so much to us for so long. And those of us in more of the Western societies, we extract from nature in order to live in these comfortable existences at the cost of destroying nature upon which these communities have relied forever and now are being threatened all the more. And so I just... I just say to people, you know, it's time for uncomfortable conversations. I learned this from a young activist in Germany who gave a really compelling talk at COP and just reminded us that it's not about being comfortable anymore. It's about getting uncomfortable, having hard conversations and changing things and change is uncomfortable. But yeah, it's just, it's urgent and let's create community and work together and support each other as we go through the change. Um, But it's time to get a little uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. And it, again, back to Ministry for the Future, the Half Earth program that they were doing, just so, so cool. The yes. idea of re- rewilding half the earth, you know, we can we can have half of it sustainably and extract and do our things and, and drive around and whatever else. But we need to give nature some space to breathe and provide us with clean water and clean air and all the things that it does for us. And I and I just love that. I, I am, I'm totally joining the half earthers at some point. Much better than the flat earthers. I, that's a group Definitely. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna join. <laughs> and so I, I want to. So this is awesome. Great conversation. I just want to wrap up with a little discussion around the Sun Valley Forum. This is a, a conference that you guys are hosting in or participating in the summer in June yes. of this coming year. July. So July. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yep. That's okay. We're hosting our ninth. Sun Valley Forum, which I'm really excited about, July 15 to 18 in Sun Valley, Idaho, actually, in the city of Ketchum. And we host it every year because I found over the years of working in the space that curation and connection and community can be really powerful when intentionally done. And we are hosting it again um, next year with a focus on nature and uh, the role of indigenous knowledge and and stewardship and food systems, energy systems, engaging the public and mobilizing capital are always on the agenda. And so really looking forward to another robust set of conversations and working sessions in Sun Valley then. So thank you. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. Again, the links to all these things will be in the show notes. So check all those out. Amy Christensen, thank you so much for joining us after COP28. I know it was a lot. I know you're exhausted. I know the holidays are coming up. Um, So thank you again for taking the time out today and talking with us and helping spread this important message. Thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate you and the opportunity to share a bit today and look forward to uh, rolling up our sleeves together going forward and into 24. Let's do it. Okay. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.